traveling and came down with a cold. Uh, so hopefully my voice isn't too bad. And um, I will try to go to 7.30, but let's see if I can handle it. Um, just setting up a few things here. So please do not use the chat to ask questions. The chat is to, um, or the Q&A is for questions. I'm gonna set the Q&A right now so that people can view all the questions and uh, attendees can comment on the questions. So if someone is asking a question in the Q&A and you wanna jump in on the answer, uh, reply to that question within the, um, within the Q&A and not to chat. However, if you'd like to join the screen with uh, your webcam, you can raise your hand. If I call on you, the only way that someone would be able to jump in and add something to the discussion would be to use the chat. So only when someone else comes on the webcam to uh, actually use, uh, to actually um, using audio and video, ask a question, that's when we'll use the chat. Um, hopefully all the settings are good. So one other reason to use the chat would be if you can't hear me uh, or the volume isn't good or something like that, please, um, you can put that in the chat. Okay, so, uh, and by the way, you can ask questions anonymously, but I will treat all anonymous questions as by one person, and I will rotate through different people, um, never answering one person's question twice. And that means that if you ask your question without being anonymous, you will probably get it answered sooner. Okay, so, <coughs> Marianne Austin asks, and by the way, I, I will be um, copying and pasting the questions into the chat because it helps with the post-production. So that's why I'll, I'll be pausing between questions for 20 seconds or so. All right, Marion Austin says, my question is about how to manage my iron status. I am heterozygous for the H63D gene and swing between iron overload and deficiency. In a nutshell, what tests should I get? What are the optimal ranges for the results? And how often should I repeat these tests? Are there any actions to take if outside the optimal ranges other than giving blood overload and eating more liver deficiency and healthy and feel good? And my goal is prevention. And I've watched your video for this topic. Uh, so I am homozygous for the H63D allele, or the HFE gene. That is associated with the less severe form of hemochromatosis. I have one H63D gene. I have two. I have one copy of that gene is not a bad situation in terms of the degree to which it predisposes you to iron overload. It's actually, it's a very moderate uh, tendency. And in a woman, there's a very high chance during the, you know, the majority of life up to menopause uh, and after puberty, that even if you have a predisposition to accumulate too much iron from your genetics, you will have a predisposition to losing iron during uh, menstrual flow. And if there's anything that causes you to stop menstruating, that could make you flip predispositions so that the genetics went out and cause you to have iron overload. And then also, if there's anything to make the menstrual uh, flow greater, um, that could switch you uh, back to a strong predisposition to losing iron to Leah. So um, I haven't seen the numbers, so it's hard for me to address uh, the specifics of this up and down that she's talking about. But in general, I would say that you want iron saturation to be between 30 and 40%. And 
you want ferritin to usually be between 60 and 150. But for someone with a very strong tendency to iron overload, which Marianne doesn't say she has, I would say maybe, you know, if you really have had a long time with really high iron levels, you might want to bring ferritin down to 20 as long as you don't go anemic. Um, whereas if you've tended to be anemic, you might want to bring ferritin up at least to 60, if not to 150, um, just, to, just to bias yourself with a window of protection against your usual tendency. Um, so 30 to 40% iron saturation, 60 to 150 ferritin are the numbers that you want to be looking at. Diane McCarthy says, per your suggestion, I am looking at citrulline to increase nitric oxide. I see now that this is because it can be recycled to arginine in the citrulline nitric oxide cycle in turn contributing to nitric oxide production. I generally need to avoid foods with a high arginine to lysine, uh, with a high arginine to lysine ratio like nuts because of a herpes simplex virus issue. Will citrulline allow me to increase arginine in a way that will bypass that or will the increase in arginine still result in flare-ups of HSV? Um, I do not know the answer to that. Um, the main way that citrulline would support nitric oxide production would be to increase systemic circulation of arginine uh, because it's converted to arginine within the kidney. And the reason it's better than just taking arginine is because it survives digestion better than arginine does. Um, it seems to me that it's possible that you would, um, I think it's, po it's possible that you would protect yourself from the negative effects of arginine on viral load, um, but I don't know if it is. Um, at least if the, it really depends on where the main effect is. So for example, if arginine is inhibiting lysine uptake in the intestines, this probably would not be relevant at all because the citrulline is being absorbed in the intestines, not as arginine, and then going to the kidney. Um, but off the top of my head, I'm not sure whether citrulline impacts lysine the same way arginine does and I also don't know where the relevant tissues are. So I would say you can try it, but um, I don't know the answer to that for sure. And that's probably a deficiency of my own knowledge rather than a deficiency of the general state of knowledge. In other words, I bet someone else knows the answer to that and I just happen to not. Um, so I wouldn't stop looking just at my answer. Okay, Chris Morell says, hi Chris. If you have one or two copies of the APOE4 allele, there are a lot of doctors and nutritionists out there recommending protocols to reduce saturated fat, meat, uh, saturated fat, and limit or exclude red meat, dairy, and even poultry. The main reasons for this recommendation seem more about reducing risk of Alzheimer's versus reducing cardiovascular disease, but I'm more concerned with the latter. My question is, does any of this really matter as long as you can keep blood lipids in the desired range? For example, is it better for someone that has an APOE4 allele to eat red meat, dairy, and all the nutritional benefits that come with them and take psyllium husk or oat beta glucan to bring lipids into normal range? Or is it better to avoid these foods altogether? I hope that question made sense, thanks. Um, well, I don't think that the APOE4 allele is just about blood lipids with respect to Alzheimer's disease. Uh, with respect to cardiovascular disease, it might be entirely explained by the effect on blood lipids, in which case, yeah, just manage your blood lipids. Um, but I doubt that Alzheimer's 
is the same there uh, for the simple reason that if you have two APOE4 alleles, I believe, and uh, I hope I'm not misquoting the data, but I believe you have something like 15 times higher risk of Alzheimer's if you're a woman with two APOE4 alleles um, and you don't have that level of increased risk of cardiovascular disease. The increase in the risk of cardiovascular disease is moderate and similar to the effect on blood lipids, whereas the effect on Alzheimer's disease is strong and is disproportionate to the effect on blood lipids. So, you know, with that said, um, I, I haven't researched this extensively, but I wasn't impressed when I tried looking for studies. I thought that, you know, poking my head around that the studies were very unimpressive when they were looking at cognitive function and saturated fat. Most of them were using combinations of high saturated fat, high sugar, which the problems with that are obvious is that the saturated fat would be sugar, but worse than that, um, there's opposite effects in young people versus old people and people without cognitive decline versus with cognitive decline decline. So it's like, who, you know, if the data is saying that like old people with established cognitive decline have better function when they eat a diet high in saturated fat and sugar, but young people without established cognitive decline have a dip when they eat a diet high in saturated fat and sugar. And we can't dissociate the effect of saturated fat from sugar. I look at that as mostly a useless body of knowledge. Um, and I wait on actually well-controlled studies that tease out those separate effects. So I think when it comes to, uh, to Alzheimer's disease, it comes back to, you know, biggest risk factors are APOE4 being a woman and being old and or older age. Um, and you can't uh, control any of those factors. I think the data that you can control your saturated fat intake according to your genetics to, to mitigate the effect of the genetics is uh, pretty poor. Whereas independent of the genetics, I think it's pretty clear that avoiding diabetes, avoiding metabolic syndrome, avoiding prediabetes, uh, exercising, supporting good blood flow, um, maintaining normal iron status, uh, maintaining social connections, and maintaining an active, uh, a both intellectually and physically active lifestyle in perpetuity are uh, things you can do something about, and you're much better off focusing on those things for Alzheimer's prevention than on assessing whether you have certain genetics and then controlling your saturated fat according to that. And at the end of the day, you probably should use your blood lipids as the primary indicator of whether uh, you can tolerate a certain degree of saturated fat, because regardless of Alzheimer's risk, cardiovascular risk is going to be impacted by sky-high blood lipids driven by saturated fat. Um, and so I think we have better data using that to control your saturated fat rather than Alzheimer's risk. So I hope that helps. Uh, Heather, Heather Chandler says, what are your thoughts whether to, and if so, for how long to abstain from supplementation before blood tests? Uh, I'm most interested in iron, zinc, and copper testing. So apart from biotin, which So apart from biotin, which can actually interfere with certain tests of things that are not biotin, um, that you might want to wait to take out biotin supplements for a few days if you don't know whether the particular tests you're getting are biotin sensitive, uh, especially if the dose of biotin is um, many times the daily value. Um, apart from that, I would say if you want your test to reflect 
what is happening in your body when you take those supplements, you want to keep taking them up until the time that you're required to fast. So if you're required to fast overnight or you're required to fast for 12 hours, take the supplements on normal schedule up until that point of fasting. Don't take the supplements during the fasting period. If you want to abstain from the supplements for longer, then I would abstain for at least four weeks. You know, if you abstain for one week or two weeks, are you testing the effect of the supplements or the effect of cutting out the supplements? You're in a very unclear gray area. So biotin, uh, three or four days, all other supplements right up until the time that you take out, uh, that you take uh, right up at the time that you start fasting, stop taking supplements during the fasting period. Um, and then, and then uh, if you want to test a baseline without the supplements, abstain from the supplements for at least four weeks. I hope that helps anyway. Linda Pliskin says, hi, Chris, about two months ago, while sleeping, I was awakened by numbness traveling in my fingers. My fingers have remained numb. Prior to that episode, I would occasionally be awakened by numbness in my fingers when it would go away. At first, I thought it might be related to riding my bike because sometimes my hands fall asleep while riding, but now my fingers never wake up. I started supplementing bone meal for calcium and have increased B vitamins and added digestive enzymes. Do you think anything else might help? I am using red light and PEMF. I have a history of SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Is it possible for the numbness to go away and how long would it take? Do you have any suggestions as to what tests might isolate the cause? Well, Linda, if I understand you right, that the numbness in your fingers has not gone away for days, I think that you should immediately see a neurologist. Um, but apart from that, uh, I mean, let, let's look at the, um, you know, whenever I, whenever I want a comprehensive view of something, I open my own product, which is testing nutritional status, the ultimate cheat sheet. So let's see what I have in here for peripheral neuropathy, which might be um, what's being referred to here is the uh, numbness. Um, although peripheral neuropathy can also be um, various other things like tingling, pain, uh, hypersensitivity of touch and various other manifestations. Okay, so in the index of signs and symptoms, uh, LMNOP, peripheral neuropathy, we have deficiencies of thiamine, riboflavin, and vitamin E, toxicity of selenium and vitamin B6. So those are the primary things to look at. I would look at, you know, is it possible you're deficient in those B vitamins? Is it possible you've had too much selenium or too much vitamin B6? Um, and then, of course, it might make sense to look at, um, you know, what are the things that changed around there? Can you brainstorm more things? But I mean, if the, if you if I understood you correctly, that the problem is not going at all, uh, I would not wait to try to figure this out yourself. I would see a neurologist. I hope that helps. Um, Zenon Jackson says. Hi, Chris. I have had a history of psoriasis type skin flaking, especially on the scalp for all my life. I have also had loose stools and number of years of 20 second warnings before explosive diarrhea. I've also always had trouble gaining muscle mass and felt burning trapped heat in my upper body. Zinc dosing really helped with this, but didn't stop it unless the doses were mega high. I can easily take five gero zinc balance in a day to keep the symptoms tamped down. Liver as a functional food helped, but I noticed it would often give me loose stools and make my skin worse. 
I tried to find why it helped sometimes, but other times liver made it all so much worse until your point on liver scarring stopped stopping vitamin A storage. This made a lot of sense and doing a proper Ben Greenfield Kipchari liver cleanse has helped a lot. Teenage use of alcohol for stress relief made me a prime candidate for a broken liver. But now after a cleanse, my ability powder liver without loose tummy and skin flare-ups says 10x. And then it says that the question is uh, continued below. Um, only taken me only taken me 20 years to fit it together. Uh, flat smile face like that. I need to know what other nutrients and ideas I can use to support liver storage of vitamin A and zinc utilizations. Cofactors of them for storage, doses of things that can clean out scar tissue and liver during my next Kachari cleanse, specific blood tests to check function and repair levels. Lastly, was my inability to store enough vitamin A, meaning that whenever I had a sufficient dose of liver, I would go vitamin A toxic. Could I have been overdosing and burning up zinc to clear it? Does an A overdose strip zinc to remove the excess? Um, okay, so she's suspecting vitamin A toxicity. Zinc, high levels of zinc help. Um, and liver is a functional food help that sometimes make things worse. And I'm not sure if that's related. Uh, I'm not sure if it has the same underlying cause. Um, so, I mean, it's hard to say for sure, but if you're thinking this is a vitamin A storage issue, then it does make sense that the high zinc would help because the zinc helps mobilize vitamin A from the liver. It helps support uh, retinol binding protein, which moves zinc, uh, I mean, which moves vitamin A out of the liver. And, <coughs> excuse me. And uh, it also, um, it also is involved in activation of vitamin A. Um, so it's quite possible that you have simultaneous uh, vitamin A liver and some deficiency symptoms from inadequate mobilization, inadequate cellular uptake. And there is evidence in um, rodents that that can be caused by obesity, which maybe is caused by fatty liver disease, um, considering fatty liver disease um, is strongly correlated with obesity and would be expected to compromise liver storage of vitamin A. Um, and the liver as a functional food might have conflicting effects because it has vitamin A, it has a, a high amount of vitamin A, high amount of copper, and a small amount of zinc. Um, so maybe the low zinc makes you vulnerable to problems from high copper, um, or, you know, sometimes the vitamin A is helpful or harmful depending on whether all the cofactors are there or something like that. So I would, um, I don't think you're going to get a conventional medical person to really suss out the vitamin A and zinc connection, but you can get an ultrasound to see if you have fatty liver, and that would be uh, very wise here. Then I would look at all the possible reasons, starting with, I don't know your weight, but if you're overweight, that would be a major reason. Um, and then choline, sugar, alcohol, fat are all potential reasons, um, depending on your diet and lifestyle. So I would look at those and I would look at using choline and antioxidant support to correct the fatty liver if that's the actual problem. And then I would be just very careful not to overdose on anything, but to use moderate doses of these nutrients, make focus on the balance and make sure that you're not um, 
you know, throwing things way out of whack by taking very high doses without making sure that you need those high doses. Great, yeah, no, no, I hope that helps. Um, Patty Beverman says, I just had a breast biopsy yesterday. Virad 5, if you're familiar with that rating, it's not good. If the results show that I have breast cancer, which I'm expecting, what nutritional strategies would you recommend? What nutrients or supplements would be most important? Any nutrients or supplements to avoid? Do you think daily intermittent fasting would be useful? Um, Uh, I, I'm not that knowledgeable about nutritional strategies for breast cancer. Um, certainly there's some evidence for vitamin D and calcium. Um, and so you might want to look at that. Uh, but then you might also want to get a Dutch test to look at estrogen metabolites, particularly if, if it's an estrogen sensitive breast cancer, um, the Dutch test will help look at how estrogen is being metabolized and what herbs or supplements or foods might um, help improve the metabolism to less carcinogenic forms. Uh, so I don't think that's a complete answer, but that's what I have for now. I hope that helps, Patty. Christine asks, how should you change up your strength training workouts? Well, that depends what your goals are. So um, if, you're in, if you're just interested in general fitness, um, then you might want to primarily train, change it up based on what, when you get sick of certain exercises, doing something that's fun. It also kind of counts towards a whole body workout. Um, if you have a specific goal of strength, then you might want to primarily switch up your exercises when you plateau in strength. And if you're after muscle mass, you might want to primarily switch up your strength training workouts based on when you plateau in muscle mass. And then, you know, as long as you're maintaining the right volume, uh, particularly for muscle growth, you would want 10 to 20 sets per week per each of six muscle groups, uh, vertical uh, pushing and pulling, horizontal pulling and pushing, and then uh, uh, lower body uh, pushing, which is squats, lower body pulling, which is deadlifts. And, um, and as long as you get some variation of each of those, and as long as you hit the right volume at the right intensity, you are continuing to do the correct full body workout. And so, yeah, just what are your goals? General fitness, when you get bored, strength, when your strength plateaus, muscle mass, when your muscle mass plateaus. Um, I hope that helps. Uh, Deanna says, how to search for a specific subject when you're mastering nutrition. There's no search box where I can type, for example, calcium and find the episode on calcium. Uh, there is a search box on my website. If you go to my website, you don't click on mastering nutrition, you click on the search uh, icon. And then on the search icon, you search for calcium and you can limit that but to the mastering nutrition category if you'd like to. Matt Riley says, I take Jero formula zinc balance, which is zinc and copper, twice a day, spread at least five hours apart based upon your excellent recommendations. Zinc on wonders. Thank you for this. You're welcome, Matt. I have read that zinc from supplements have cadmi cadmium contamination. I've also read that supplements of any metals such as zinc or copper can be easily oxidized, initiate strong redox reactions. I trust you above anything I've read. I just want to run it by you for peace of mind as I hope 
to keep this regimen going long term and continue to benefit. Thank you for your work. Um, I don't know. I haven't looked into cadmium contamination of zinc supplements. I would assume that varies per product. And so I would look at someone, um, the Consumer Reports or Environmental Working Group or you know, someone who's assessing how much cadmium is in different zinc supplements if that exists. Um, and then zinc is not a redox metal. So that would be true of copper, but it would not be true of zinc. I hope that helps, Matt. Uh, um, Joni Sego says, my 17-year-old is a carbotarian, no meat and essentially no fruits or vegetables. Her weight is okay, BMI of 21 or so, and she swears she feels great. I've told her that eating nothing but fiber bars, peanut butter on white bread, and ice cream will get her to her eventually. To prove my point, I would like her pediatrician to check labs. What would your top five labs to check global nutritional status for someone eating the worst diet ever? The literature seems mixed. She eats on the run most of the time. I'm going to insist that she sit with the family again, but would like some laboratory jobs to go to. Um, I mean, testing nutritional status, the ultimate cheat sheet is a comprehensive guide to the most important lab tests. So I would use the protocol on that, which is not based upon the dietary analysis of whether the diet is the worst diet ever or not, but it's based on, you know, doing a dietary analysis in, for example, chronometer and seeing whether certain nutrients are likely more deficient. When you could pick those, if you only want to do five, pick the top five things that appear to be deficient based on micronutrient analysis with a tool such as chronometer. Um, yeah, I don't think it makes any sense to pick the top five based on the general population um, because your 17-year-old isn't the general population. Um, so you don't either do comprehensive testing or first do dietary analysis, symptom analysis, and then use dietary analysis and symptom analysis to narrow down the tests that you like. I hope that helps, Joni. I'm sorry, it wasn't a direct answer to your question, but I believe it was the, the correct answer. Steve Marshall says, with gluconeogenesis, is the glucose produced a cleaner glucose or is it all standard glucose? I have no idea what you mean by that. Um, Glucose is glucose, but I'm not sure what you mean by cleaner or standard. Uh, is gluconeogenesis exclusively demand-driven only? Um, yeah, it's, well, I mean, nothing is exclusively anything, but it is mainly demand-driven, meaning you do gluconeogenesis not because you have extra protein, you do gluconeogenesis because you don't have enough glucose. Um, and is that gluconeogenesis demand derived from muscle energy only where no glucose carbs are available and while fats, ketones are not available? Um, no, it's driven by the demand for glucose and the demand for glucose is, is reduced by ketones primarily on a long-term ketogenic diet in the brain. Um, and on that long-term ketogenic diet, muscles will burn more fatty acids. Um, but muscles are primarily going to burn glucose, um, mostly through demand for quick energy. So during intense exercise. Whereas the brain will always use glucose. The, the demand for glucose goes down 75% in the brain on a ketogenic diet. doesn't go down to zero. Red blood cells will always use glucose. Certain poorly oxygenated tissues, such as the cornea of the eye, will always use glucose. Certain cells in the testes and kidney will always use glucose, no matter how ketogenic you are. Um, and uh, you will do less gluconeogenesis on a 
when you have a lot of ketones compared to when you don't in the, for the same level of glucose deprivation. But the main reason you have ketones in the first place is because that reduces the demand for gluconeogenesis, which helps you during extended fasting stay alive rather than tearing apart all your muscle for gluconeogenesis. Um, no glucose is intrinsically not clean. Um, all glucose can be burned clean, and all glucose is glucose. Um, there are no different types of glucose. Okay. Um, I mean, there's no different types of glucose uh, beyond some variation in, in like, um, like some glucose in a solution of glucose will be in a, in a ring form, some will be in, in a uh, you know, linear form and stuff, you know, chemistry level stuff like that. But the molecule of glucose is one molecule, one type of, um, you know, one molecule of glucose is identical to the next molecule of glucose and the same uh, chemical forces causing it to uh, become a ring or a line shape, um, if that makes sense. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, okay, Xavier Bateri says, Chris, what are the pros and cons of stevia, please? Um, I haven't done a lot of research into it, but you know, pro of stevia is that it doesn't contain sugar. So if you have, if you get, um, you know, gum inflammation from eating sugar, or you get uh, intestinal problems from eating sugar because of SIBO or because of fructose malabsorption or something like that, then the pro of stevia is that it doesn't have any sugar and it's not gonna cause those problems. I'm not sure how big the cons of stevia are. I mean, certainly the, one of the cons of stevia doesn't taste like sugar. And so I like stevia in coffee, but most things that have stevia are not that good tasting, I think. Um, and then, you know, there are some animal exper experiments causing harms to like testosterone and the microbiome from like massive amounts. But I'm not sure that has much relevance to someone who just adds a couple packets of stevia, a couple drops of stevia in their coffee every day or something like that. Anonymous says, Chris, are there any nutritional differences for the health of the capillaries versus arteries? Um, I don't really understand that question. So anonymous, maybe you could rephrase it. Um, you know, you don't eat for different tissues. Uh, you know, I, I guess like if you have an arterial disease, you might say, well, you know, what is the nutritional like, impact to prevent cardiovascular disease? What is the nutritional impact to prevent uh, poor circulation of capillaries or something like that? Is that what or you mean something else, I'm not sure. Um, so anonymous, I'll leave your question open and then you can uh, expand on it. So uh, Kate M says, how many cans of Crown Prince smoked oysters eaten for the zinc is appropriate per week? Uh, I am a 29 year old woman, 135 pounds. How about for a man similar age to 100 pounds? How's the male ejaculation figured out how much, how often one eats these oysters? I hope you know what canned oysters I'm talking about. Um, basically one or two oysters per day um, would be enough to give most people the amount of zinc they need. And uh, I won't go by cans. It depends how many oysters are in there. And of course, it depends on the size and the size, the size of the oyster. But I think the easiest thing to do is just eat one or two oysters per day, either on an empty stomach or with a meal that does not contain whole grains, nuts, seeds, or legumes. Um, and then uh, each male ejaculation uses about 1.3 milligrams of zinc, but because the absorption of zinc from food isn't complete, 
you to compensate for that, you should get three milligrams of zinc for every ejaculation. And a simple thing to do might be to eat like one extra oyster for each ejaculation. I uh, hope that helps. Chris Morales says, hi, Chris, one more question. It's about butyrate. For someone who has some level of gut dysbiosis and is trying for digestion, strengthening the intestinal wall, among other things, is eating enough resistant starch each day to feed the good bacteria in the gut to reduce butyrate and other short-chain fatty acids in the right approach? Or could butyrate supplementation be a better route? Um, butyrate sup supplementation is primarily going to reach the small intestine. A butyrate enema would primarily reach the colon. Um, and if you have a small intestinal disorder, um, I forget what the dose of butyrate that's been used is, but it's about in a stick of butter per day. Um, I, I hope that answers your question, Chris. Zenon Jackson says, oh, I had already answered that, sorry. Deanna Doroshenko says, should I continue supplementation of calcium, calcium citrate 150 to 300 milligrams per day by pure or better use free range pasture fed whole bean calcium, whole bone calcium? Since I have a concern, I have enough of it in my diet. I do not use a lot of milk and cheese because my DNA test shows that I have a lactose intolerance and second milk product have been associated and second milk products have been associated with acne. Provided that my PTH is normal, my 25-OHT1, 25-OHT2, my two. Um, I, I would use uh, calcium citrate if you're trying to alkalinize or you have a need to avoid phosphorus. I would use whole bone calcium if you don't have a need to alkalinize and you don't have a need to avoid phosphorus or you do have a need for phosphorus. Um, other than that, I, I wouldn't, I, I think you have, you know, freedom to decide for yourself what you prefer. Uh, Patty Beverlin says, should I be concerned about very low triglyceride levels? Range 21 to 39, the last three times it was checked, can that cause health problems? Um, that depends, but you, it's conceivable that you have a hypo beta lipoproteinemia, which means that you are not able to produce the carriers for fat soluble vitamins. So I would look at uh, either a stool panel for fat malabsorption and or all the fat soluble vitamins in the blood. Genova, IR, uh, not Genova has a fat soluble vitamin panel that, that covers most of the fat soluble vitamin forms and would be useful for that to do everything in the shot. Joni Sego says, I agree with, oh, there's a follow-up to your previous question. I agree with seeing a neurologist, depending on which fingers are involved, it could be carpal tunnel, ulnar nerve entrapment. I would think a nutritional deficiency wouldn't be that limited in geography. Um, this was in response to a question about fingers going numb. I think a nutritional deficiency could very well be limited in where it's occurring, if that's what you mean. And... Uh, you know, it could be something that's non-nutritional. Therefore, see the neurologist. Don't just test, you know, yourself different nutrients. Um, but that's mainly because it's not going away at all, which is very strange. Um, and less so just because it happens to just be in your fingers, in my opinion. Um, let's see. 
Marianne Austin says another question. Clinical studies suggest that saffron is protective of retinal degenerative diseases. Saffron acts at different levels directly as an antioxidant, but also by regulating many gene and protein synthesis. Can you comment on whether and how to incorporate saffron in nutritional or and or supplements? Um, no, I can't. I don't know that much about saffron, and I'm not sure I have anything to say about how it interacts with other things. I'm sorry that I don't have better answer to that. Um, Diana Doroshenko says, Chris, should I be concerned with a low level of vitamin K2 in intracellular level white blood cells being, um, being 0 0.2 range 0.1 to 0.89 while I have it at a normal range in the blood serum 1.10 nanograms per milliliter. Um, I, as far as I know, that's not a validated marker of vitamin K status. So um, I would not get that test. I hope that helps. Um, Xavier Bottery says, Chris, timers to completing just fasting for 12 to 16 hours per day in this case, makes you eat a lot of food in a short time window. Could you please remind us whether some foods are better absorbed when taken in isolation? For instance, are proteins better digested without starches? Um, well, I think the more relevant thing is some things need to be spread out. So protein is best spread out if you want to build muscle and normally muscle breakdown. And um, if you restrict the window in which you consume protein, you will need to eat a lot more protein to get the same effect on your muscle growth. Um, so there's that. Then there are other nutrients such as um, zinc and vitamin B12 are great examples where there are absorption caps. So you really can't absorb more than seven milligrams of zinc or so in five hours. So if you only have one five-hour period to eat your zinc, um, you're going to absorb a lot less of it than if you had three five-hour periods to get your zinc. Same thing would be true of B12. Um, and that's something that in my Vitamins and Minerals 101 book, I will be incorporating into all the chap chapters on specific nutrients and also into a table that compares um, the nutrients for whether they should or don't have to be spread out evenly like that. Um, Kate M says, there's a new multivitamin being heavily advertised on Instagram called Ritual Multivitamin that does not have calcium. Uh, the company insists that most people eat enough calcium already. Instead, the company emphasizes vitamin K2, MK7 content, no MK4. Do you agree with this? No. Uh, is calcium supplementation only necessary for people who really need it? Yes. I'm very suspicious of this, but I want to steer my friends right who have asked me about this. Well, first of all, most multivitamins don't have enough calcium anyway. And, and that's because uh, um, you can't fit calcium in a multivitamin. Even if you take just calcium, uh, you'll probably have to take three or four capsules of beta hypoglobin to make it fit you. And if you're trying to fit all that in a multivitamin, you're never going to fit one or two capsules with, a, with you know, 30 other nutrients in it. Um, so no multivitamins have enough calcium for one. And then... Um, yeah, someone who's drinking three glasses of milk a day doesn't need calcium supplements. But someone who is not drinking any milk, not eating any bones, not supplementing any calcium, probably needs calcium. There may be um, some people who don't if they eat enough of the right foods, but it's generally very hard to get enough calcium without any bones and dairy and limiting your foods to what's available in the grocery stores in the U.S. Um, hope that helps, Kate.
Jen, uh, Joni Sago says, there was a recent paper speculating that the reason omega-3 fatty acid supplementation didn't improve symptoms in patients with APOE4 Mendel centers disease is because omega-3 supplements don't cross the blood-brain barrier, whereas omega-3s from actual fish are linked to phosphatidylcholine. I can find some OTC supplements that say triglyceride link, but that doesn't sound similar enough. What about taking omega-3s with eggs? Fish oil and eggs, yum, yum. Um, yeah, I mean, if you take high choline foods, you're probably getting phosphatidylcholine that's linked to omega-3s if those foods are rich in omega-3s. In the case of eggs, that's mainly pasture-raised eggs that have some significant DHA in them. Ah, krill oil is supposed to be phospholipid-based. Um, and, you know, I don't think it's true that it's like they either do or don't cross the blood-brain barrier, but you're getting phosphatidylcholine-linked omega-3s. You're going to get them in there faster, in their brain faster for a certain amount taken regularly than you would if they're triglyceride-linked. So that's how I see that. Um, Diana Duroshenko says vitamin D should I be concerned with a low level of intracellular vitamin D by blood cell while serum level always better than one average. Um, low level of intracellular vitamin D while serum, uh, no. Um, I, there's no support for measuring vitamin D in white blood cells as a marker of nutritional status. So uh, don't, don't measure it. Marianne Austin says, follow up to iron query, first question today. With what frequency should I get ferritin and iron saturation blood tests to manage my iron stats quarterly every six months annually? Um, do them quarterly at first and then see how, you know, what the up and down swings are and then reduce the frequency based on your, your ability to do that. So if you're every three months, you are finding a new fluctuation of iron that's changing your action plan, then you need to keep doing it every three months. But if you're finding that it goes somewhere, it stabilizes, then you know it takes a while. Then it changes according to something that happened in your life, um, according to blood donation or according to how you eat. Then reduce the frequency to catch what you've shown with testing are the normal, the relevant fluctuations. Diana Doroshenko has several more questions. Chris, should I be concerned with low level of glutamine in the intracellular? Um, no, don't measure anything in white blood cells. Uh, Deanna, I've heard that, Deanna Doroshenko also says, I've heard that you mentioned using MyFitnessPal to measure your nutrients. This is something we should all do. Um, no, this is a good way to measure your calories, your protein, fat, and carbohydrates, but it's a bad way to measure your micronutrients. Right now, the best thing to do is to use chronometer. I'll make a note to link to my chronometer video. There are, are important caveats to how you use chronometer to avoid false zeros that are absolutely critical. Um, but chronometer used properly is the, at current uh, the best thing to use uh, for, for vitamins and minerals. Um, Patty also says, anything that can be done supplement-wise with a young child has multiple severe food allergies dairy eggs, nuts, peanuts, meaning anything that might help them overcome food allergies. Um, if there's a lot of food allergies, then you might have a general bias towards an, an you know, anti-tolerance in the gut. 
and arachidonic acid, avoiding NSAIDs, avoid high dose fish oil, and get plenty of arachidonic acid from liver and egg yolks, get plenty of vitamin A, uh, make sure you get enough zinc to use that vitamin A. Those are the biggest things that you can do from a nutritional perspective, uh, from a micronutrient perspective. Uh, Xavier Viteri says, Chris, why endurance athletes can do tons of hygienic carbs and negative diabetes control have to be more careful? Um, because active people, the muscle consumes the glucose and it doesn't wind up increasing glucose in the blood because the muscle consumes it for energy. Deanna says, this is the last question here. Um, oh, this is another white blood cell. Um, no, you just uh, don't, don't use white blood cells for nutritional status. A couple more questions just came in. Kate M says, anecdotally, women have said that eating supplementing beef liver has really helped with pain during periods. You may be able to explain why this is. Um, beef liver. Um, I'm not sure. That's very interesting. Uh, arachidonic acid could have a role there, although most women use um, NSAIDs, which inhibit arachidonic acid metabolism to uh, mitigate the pain. So I'm not sure if that would do it. Uh, the vitamin, a might, vitamin A might help with hormones and um, uh, oh, one thing. Okay, sorry, I gotta go soon. <laughs> um, so it could be uh, vitamin A might help with hormones. Um, copper might help with hormones. I would think pain would be partly due to electrolyte balance. I'm not sure how liver would help with that. That's a very interesting topic. I'd have to think about it more. Uh, and then Zenon says, Zenon here, 39-year-old male for the question, how do you recommend removing gynecomastia breast tissue as opposed to fat on the chest? And would any of these recommendations also help with fatty liver, liver scarring, vitamin A, zinc balance issues? Um, well, that depends on the context. So, you know, fatty liver is highly strongly correlated with obesity. Obesity would explain the, you know, converted, increased estrogen levels that could be driving that. So I would first fix obesity and fatty liver through normal, um, through normal methods, and that might uh, help with the gynecomastia. Um, but, you know, in principle, normalize the hormones and, um, that could be complicated, uh, more complicated than I'm, than I'm suggesting, but the starting place would be resolving obesity, fatty liver, um, and estrogen metabolism. All right, hope that helps. And that will bring this to a close. There will be another Q and A, uh, on Saturday. And, um, okay. There's a couple things that came in for quick follow-ups. Um, but after this, I'd like to close the, uh, the questions. Um, a little, a little early, uh, if, if they um, don't come in right now. Uh, okay, Kate M says, if you have time, would you please keep commenting on electrolyte balance and period pain? Um, I'll link in the show notes to. Um, actually, I'm not sure if I've published on this. So basically, salt leads to water retention. PMS is correlated with reduced clearance of progesterone that leads to spillover of aldosterone, which leads to wasting of potassium in the urine and retention of salt, which leads to water retention. I'm not sure if that 
is directly related to the period pain, but the symptoms do cluster and correlate. So it might be. And, um, and the best things for that are magnesium, vitamin B6, possibly reducing salt, increasing potassium, depending on whether that seems to help. Um, and then uh, there might be something underlying preventing the progesterone from clearing. I don't know what that is, but if, if research shows that, then that would be an important part of it. Um, and then the last question of the day, uh, Xavier says, quick follow-up, please. Um, how do I know whether my muscles absorb glucose directly or whether it triggers, in, it triggers insulin? How much do I need to train? Um, Generally, you will find that if you are vulnerable to high blood glucose, which you could monitor with a CGM if you have one, or with a pin prick at a half hour, one, two, three, four hours after you eat carb-containing meals, um, you will probably find that high-intensity sports, such as soccer or anything similar, basketball, and then uh, weightlifting with reps higher than 10, like the 10 to 15 range, will probably increase your toleration for carbs on the, on the, after the workout for about a day. Um, in my anecdotal experience. Um, but the, the real answer is just, you know, if your blood glucose doesn't rise, your muscles absorb it. All right, that concludes tonight. We will have another Q&A on Saturday. Um, so if there are, is still space to sign up, um, you're welcome to sign up to attend Saturdays as well. Um, and I look forward to seeing you there. My cold should be gone. And we, um, maybe I'll, my day will be working better, but certainly my day will be. Um, so I look forward to seeing some of you in Saturday's Q&A if you make it. Thanks.